invite you to take your Bibles this morning and turn to 2 Timothy 2. Looking at verses 23 through 26 this morning as we complete the chapter in 2 Timothy 2, the servant of the Lord must not strive. A couple of weeks ago in 2 Timothy 2.14, we considered the call to avoid striving about words to no profit in a message that I entitled A War of Words. And that really has been the basis for, for the messages. It was the basis for last week's messages. We continued and it will continue to be the basis for our thinking even through next week and the week after as we continually hearken back to this exhortation by Paul that we not get caught up in subversive study. False study, a study which undermines um, true knowledge of God, which serves rather to confirm us in our own pride or our own way of thinking or our own priorities in the spectacular or the interesting rather than those things that are of Christ. And the danger of these problems as we spoke of them, reading between the lines, majoring on the minors, getting spiritual tunnel vision to where we focus in on one particular truth to the expense of the other truths. Uh, they are at, at worst a, a, a uh, waste of time, making me ineffective. They are, or excuse me, at best, a waste of time making me ineffective. At worst, uh, they can be completely subverting unto heresy or apostasy, not just for myself, but for others that might fall prey to this subversive study and these, these uh, subversive teachings. And today we're considering a different type of striving. Uh, strive not about words to no profit. It's not uh, an accident that Paul is continuing to use this word strive. This is the theme of what Paul is speaking of as we have continued. And this particular type of striving is not striving about words. It's not subversive study in that sense, fighting over words. It's striving between individuals. And once again, Paul is exhorting Timothy unto these things as a pastor who uh, would be in regular habit of speaking to people about doctrinal and spiritual things. But we can certainly find great application to these principles in all of our lives, and I'll make those connections today. The concept that we're going to consider has to do with the nature of disagreement surrounding particularly spiritual or theological concepts, be that within the context of believers or within the context of unbelievers. There are certain lines of questioning and discussion which are valuable. And then there are certain lines of questioning and discussion which lack any profit whatsoever. And it's important for us to be able to discern between meaningful lines of inquiry and useless argument. And in much the same way as subversive study, these useless arguments serve only to divide, to confuse, and to distract. And we're in a particular time where this is more important than ever, and I think you'll see that as we walk through the study. We are in a particular time in our society and in our culture where we are being trained to strive in discussion and in argument. We are being trained not to discuss, but to win. It's what is on our mind. And what Paul is exhorting unto here, the striving about words to no profit, but to the subverting of the hearers, is subverting our faith, subverting our capacity to be used of God. The striving with others in the way that we're going to talk about today, uh, by entertaining foolish and unlearned questions, 
will turn others off to the gospel, to sound doctrine, and in doing so will make the job of the Spirit of God and working on their hearts harder. So let's dig into the text this morning and understand this exhortation. In verse 23, Paul writes this, but foolish and unlearned questions avoid, knowing that they do gender strifes. Paul's exhortation here is unto a method of ministry. Questions are a natural part of a pastor's life, and in many ways, questions are a natural part of a believer's life. Uh, you live in a manner which may not be necessarily d different in every way, but is generally distinct from the world around you. You live in a manner that the people around you that live inculcated by the world, is, uh, they're not necessarily going to understand, and that means they're going to ask you Questions, be they questions about the scriptures or questions about how life and natural life intersects with God's design and with truths. And it's natural and important that people get the answers to their questions as they are seeking to choose to what degree they're going to put their faith in the scriptures and the God who authored them. It is essential, as Paul writes to Timothy here, that Timothy as a minister be able to answer those questions. But not only ministers should be ready to answer those questions. Peter would write to the church that's scattered abroad throughout the region, the Jews that were scattered in the church. We often call it the diaspora, which is simply the Greek word for uh, the, the scattering. And he would write this in 1 Peter 3, verses 15 and 16. But sanctify the Lord God in your hearts, and be ready always to give an answer to every man that asketh you a reason of the hope that is in you with meekness and fear. Having a good conscience that whereas they speak evil of you as of evildoers, they may be ashamed that falsely accuse your good conversation in Christ. Peter calls on all who name the name of Christ to be ready to give an answer to the man who would ask of the reason of our hope. And 1 Peter is a book that is speaking toward the concept of suffering for the faith. That as these people are suffering for their faith, Peter says, you sanctify the Lord God in your hearts, you set him apart, and you are ready to give an answer when someone says, why are you, uh, why are you living this way when it means this kind of suffering? When, when these people are speaking evil of me as of an evildoer for my well-doing, how am I to respond? And that's to have an answer. That's to live in good conscience. That's to maintain a good conversation, a good deportment in Christ. As men watch believers live a joyful and earnest, live in the joyful and earnest expectation of their reward, as we yield the things of this life for the things of the life that is to come, when a man would ask us, why do you do such a thing? We should be eager and ready to explain to them why. So the idea of both being ready and willing to answer the questions of others is not one that's exclusive to ministers. And by that, I hope you won't just tune out this message saying, oh, this is just one that ministers need to listen to, because really, it's absolutely not. The exhortation is to avoid foolish and unlearned questions. The word avoid here is one that's regularly translated in the New Testament as refuse or reject. That is, questions come which reflect either foolishness or unprofitability or simply unlearnedness in the text that we are to reject them under a very specific set of circumstances. And that set of circumstances is that they gender strifes. 
They gender fighting, they gender controversy. Now, we really need to think through this together this morning because while the statement is cut and dry, the application of it is anything but. You can perhaps think of any number of questions which somebody would ask of you under the category of foolish or unlearned, at least from your perspective. Sometimes these questions work out only to division. Sometimes, however, they're actually coming from a place of genuineness and there is a profitability in pursuing them. Sometimes these conversations end up beginning with, with a profitable motive. Someone asks a question and, okay, well, that sounds genuine enough. Let's talk through that. But then as the conversation continues, you realize either they were not being, there was a disingenuous question to begin with. They're just trying to trap you or whatever. Or it has taken a turn whereby it is no longer profitable. It's kind of gone from just being interesting to now this is, this is just ridiculous. It's no longer being profitable anymore. It has become fruitless. It has become contentious. And these are the things which we need to be constantly considering and discerning so that our time and our effort is put into that which really matters and not upon things which simply do not. Maybe it is that you're talking with a family member and you're having a conversation and that conversation turns to some question of the faith. And you say, okay, there's a question here. And you begin to ask the, uh, answer that question and it's going fine. And then all of a sudden something kind of clicks, and now it's just an argument. Now it's just, and, and, and it has become unprofitable. Well, at that point, it's time to reject it. It's time to say, we're done here. We're not going to go any farther in this conversation. And why wouldn't we want to stop that conversation? Well, because the next words will probably be, oh, okay, you lose, right? And you don't want to do that. You don't want to give in. You don't want to make them think that you can't answer the question. But if it's not going to be profitable, if it's not going to be profitable, then it needs to be passed, needs to be rejected. And the main standard here is this very thing, whether people are looking for answers or they're looking for arguments. Let's consider some examples. An unbeliever comes up to you and asks a question about salvation. And I've received this one before and I've received it genuinely and I've received it disingenuinely. So a person comes up and he says to you, well, we, you say that salvation is by faith and not by works. And that all we need to do to be saved is to believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. But here's the problem. If you have to believe, then you're doing something, which means you're doing a work. So how can you say salvation is not by works? Now, when an unbeliever asks this question, the first thing that runs through my mind is, is this a foolish and unlearned question? Well, and the answer is, well, yes. I mean, it is an unlearned question. Then I ask the question, is it going to gender strifes? In other words, does this person bear the marks of a man who is truly seeking and needs to reconcile something that's going on in his mind? Or is this a gotcha question? Where he's looking for, not looking for an answer, he's looking for an argument. He's looking for a way to tear down to my credibility or to make me go, oh, I, I don't really know how to answer that so that he can feel good about himself or he can justify his rejection of the faith or someone else's rejection of the faith. If someone is genuinely looking for an answer to that question, answer the question. If someone's just looking to start a fight, well, reject it. Refocus. And that doesn't necessarily mean saying, I'm not going to answer your question. You refocus. Uh, I had someone several years ago with this, actually, this very question email me and say, what do I do when someone asks this? Uh, because I, I gave them an answer, but they didn't understand it. They didn't accept it because, of course, they don't understand spiritual things. And this is actually a spiritual concept, right? 
Well, I said, anytime a person gets on to one of those questions and you know that they're not going to understand the answer because it's spiritually discerned and the carnal man cannot receive the things of, of the spirit, neither can he know them, redirect it back to the gospel. Say, that's an interesting question, but before we answer that one, let's just establish some things about the gospel. Because the gospel is the part that they can understand because that's what the spirit of God works into the hearts of, of, of the unbeliever. So don't be drawn into the drama that will only serve to divide, only serve to confirm them in their pride or confuse the listeners. But if it's a legitimate question, then answer the question. And just because that is one that maybe some of you say, hey, pastor, that is a good question. How do we reconcile the fact that, I, that you are doing something by believing in the Lord Jesus Christ with the fact that it's not by works? How would you answer that? Well, when the Bible speaks of a work, nowhere does it imply that, no, that you're not involved in the process. That's not what a work is defined as in the scriptures. The biblical definition of work unto salvation is not me doing something at all, but rather the biblical definition of work is doing something that is meritorious, doing something to earn perceived merit or worth with God. A work in the sense of salvation is not just an action, but a meritorious action thinking that there's anything that I can do to earn my way to God. That is what a work is. To believe on the Lord Jesus Christ does involve a free act of the will, right? It does involve me exercising my will unto an end. In fact, Jesus tells us in John 3, verses 14 and 15, and as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have eternal life. Jesus likens salvation by belief, to the account in Numbers 21 of the brazen serpent. The people of Israel had murmured against God. And so God sent fiery serpents among them to bite them. And any serpent, any person who was bitten by one of those fiery serpents would inevitably die. No exceptions. So the people cry out to God and God instructs Moses to build to create a brazen serpent, a brass serpent, and to put it up on a pole in the center of the camp. And he instructed the children of Israel that anyone who was bitten by one of these fiery serpents and who would look to the brazen serpent, if they would look when they were bitten, they would live and not die. If they refused to look to the serpent, they would die. Now, does it follow that the person in Israel was compelled to do something to be saved from death? Well, yes. In the moment that they were bitten, they had to make a conscious choice to turn their eyes onto the, the serpent on the pole. And if they tried instead to be healed in some other manner, amputate the leg, uh, cold compress, whatever it might be, uh, they would die. So they had to do something in that sense. But was what they did an act of merit? Well, absolutely not. Anyone who turned to look at that pole would have no way in good faith to claim they had any part in their healing, right? There's no one that would walk away having been healed after looking at the serpent that would say, wow, I did a great job there. I, I, I really, I've got something with which to boast because I looked at the serpent that God told me to look at when I got bit by the, by, by the fiery serpents. There's no merit there. There's no boasting there. There's no work there. 
there's an action, but not a work as the Bible would define it. It's not meritorious. God healed them because they put their faith in what God had told them. The same is true of salvation. Must we seek, must we turn to the Lord to be saved? Must we believe on the Lord Jesus Christ to be saved? Yes, we must. Must we invoke our will? Absolutely. But no one can in good faith actually call this a meritorious work. There's nothing within which any man can boast because it's God's work from beginning to end. I'm simply believing what he said. Another example of foolish and unlearned questions. When I was in college, I distinctly remember a group of people, and this was among believers, so that was an, that's an unbelieving example. I distinctly remember walking by a group of, of, of young men having a lively debate over the gospel. And it was surrounding the concept in Romans chapter 10, verses 9 and 10, which says, For whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. And these men were debating whether or not a person who is mute who cannot speak, and thus could not actually call out to the Lord, could be saved. Now, this is both foolish and unlearned, right? Uh, there's, there's no profit to that whatsoever. That is a silly, useless, time-wasting debate. We know that that's not what Romans 10, 9, and 10 means. And if they did think that Romans 10, 9, and 10 meant that, then they have striven about words to no profit, right? They, they need to get back to the subversive study part of this so that they can avoid the foolish, unlearned question part of that. These are, are, are things that simply need to be rejected. Somebody comes up to me to, to, to have that debate, and I say, I'm not having that debate with you. Go back and, 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 and rethink. You know, we, we can have a conversation about how to study your Bible properly. But that, that would be a profitable conversation. We can have a conversation about, about, about what matters in the gospel. We can, that, that's, but I'm not going to debate you about the merit of that because that's a meritless question. That's a foolish and unlearned question. We're not going to waste our time on that. And the lists are endless, right, about these foolish and unlearned questions. Can God create a rock which is too big for him to lift? Which was created first, the chicken or the egg? If incest was contrary to God's law, then uh, who did Adam and Eve's children marry? Uh, what did Jesus look like when he walked on this earth? How many apostles were there? These are all questions, and some of these have valid, good, normal answers that you can answer, and some of these things are just, you know, gotcha questions. Many of you may have answers to these, but how quickly can so many foolish and unlearned questions devolve into petty bickering, into useless division, and how much time is wasted on these meaningless controversies that could easily be spent sharing the gospel, edifying one another, uh, reading the lines rather than between the lines as we talked about a few weeks ago. So don't get caught up in foolish and unlearned questions. Discern whether questions are honest or whether they're disingenuous. And even if they are honest, discern whether the answer will have any meaningful, useful effect in the inquirer's heart or mind. And then finally, determine whether or not the question can possibly re be received unto a measure of usefulness or whether it's just gonna devolve into argument. And if the questions have no merit, reject it. Don't be rude, don't be cruel, don't be a jerk about it, don't be proud. Just determine not to get distracted by these things. Move past them, change the subject, get to something that does have meat to it. And by the way, this may happen halfway through a conversation, right? We've already said that. It begins with the potential of merit, but as you're walking through it, asking questions, trying to dig to the meat, you realize that there's no meat on those bones. Okay, well then just, 
That's, that's the point to move on. Reject it halfway through. Change, uh, change the trajectory of the conversation. Don't get caught up in things that gender strifes. And we'll see why in our next verse. Just like with study, so too with questions and conversation. Biblical questioning is not an end unto itself. You're not being spiritual just because you're talking about biblical things. If they are devolving to uselessness, there's, it, it, it doesn't make you any better simply because you're thinking about something that has to do with the Bible. Answering questions, spiritual conversations, they are a means unto an end. They, if they don't accomplish the end, which is to edify the believer, to exhort the believer, to convict the believer or the unbeliever, then they're no more valuable than any other carnal conversation. And they may even be subversive to the faith of the hearers. And so Paul exhorts in verse 24, verse 25. And the servant of the Lord must not strive, but be gentle unto all men, apt to teach, patient, in meekness, instructing those that oppose themselves if God peradventure will give them repentance to the acknowledging of the truth. Why does this matter so much? One of the things you have perhaps realized in this age of the internet and YouTube and, and, <clears throat> and tremendous division in our country, politically and, socio, uh, and, and uh, socially, is that winning arguments convinces very few people. Huh. Winning arguments doesn't really convince people. You see the headline on YouTube. So-and-so destroys so-and-so. So-and-so destroys Snowflake, destroys this, destroys that, right? And we watch these people use gotcha statements and leading questions to win arguments and make the person walk away feeling ashamed or feeling bad or feeling uh, uh, embarrassed or, um, or they didn't have an answer, making them feel stupid, look stupid. Uh, even, if they're, if, even, even if they're not, even if they had a reasonable answer, uh, changing things just a little bit to make people look foolish, to embarrass them. And, you know, this is great red meat for, for a, a preconceived way of thinking, right? It's great clickbait. Hardening both sides in their own preconceived notions, neither side walking away with anything to think about because the objective interaction, the, the, the object of the interaction is not to talk, it's to win. We don't have conversations to talk today, do we? We have conversations to win. A few months will be coming to Thanksgiving and you'll see the headlines. Conservative newspaper, uh, conservative, not, not newspapers per se, but conservative digital publications, liberal di uh, um, digital publications, how to win the argument at Thanksgiving with your whatever phobic uncle, right? How to win the argument at Thanksgiving. How to, how to you know, destroy the family member who has this opinion is gonna bring it to the, the family meal. Uh, th this is the mindset of the day. Right? People don't want to talk today. People want to win. People don't want to be humble. They want to be right. You don't convince people of your perspective by winning arguments. You convince people of your perspective by having honest conversations. You will never win people to Jesus Christ by dominating in them in a debate over whether such and such is rational. You'll never win a religious cult member over to the truth by dominating them in a debate over the deity of Jesus Christ. If you want to convince people, believer, if you want people to be one, 
It will come by having honest, gentle, patient conversations with them. Through love and humility, as you partner with the Holy Spirit to commend truth to their conscience. Now, if you win an argument, it's not, it's not wrong to win an argument. <laughs> but if the goal is to win and not to listen, you're not going to help them and you're not going to help yourself. And we talked last week about the fact that truth is self-validating. Truth stands on its own two feet. I am a defender of truth in the sense that I espouse truth and I seek to live it. But truth stands on its own two feet. If I'm speaking truth, I've already won the argument, regardless of what the perception is. That's not the point, though. The point is to help people understand truth. And I'm not going to do that by making them feel like a fool. I'm not going to do that by, in, by, by uh, the moment that I, in, uh, I, I take them to a place where they feel as though they have to harden and defend themselves against my ad hominems, my personal attacks, or my making them look foolish or feel foolish. The minute that I go into a group of people and I start to pick them apart one by one in front of their friends, they're not going to be one, right? I may win, but they're not going to be one. The servant of the Lord must not strive, but be gentle unto all men apt to teach and patient in meekness, meekness, a humble gentleness, strength under control, instructing those that oppose themselves. If you want to convince people, partner with the Holy Spirit in humility and talk with them. And this is our problem in our clickbait culture, but it's also a problem in the church. We don't argue with people with an eye toward dominating conversation to leave feeling as though we have won. The servant of the Lord is gentle unto all men. I would not do you any service. This is one of the things, even, as, even with preachers. I'm in a friendly audience here. I could easily get up and start making fun of fill in the blank, right? Of the atheist or the uh, agnostic or the... The, the snowflake or whatever, whatever term you want to use today. I could easily do that and we'd all have a good time with it and you'd walk away feeling uh, uh, better about yourself and I'd walk away feeling better about myself. Um, but we would walk away having been bolstered in our pride, in our judgmentalism, not in humility and in earnest desire to reach those people. We have just spoken of those people in a contemptu contemptuous way, in a contemptible way. We have heaped upon them contempt rather than heaping upon them concern and love. The servant of the Lord is gentle to all men, eager and ready to answer, to teach, to help, and to guide. Patient with those who don't get it. Patient with those who are trying to find their way through the maze of thoughts and feelings and perceptions about life and godliness. The unbeliever and the subverted believer are operating in opposition to themselves because they operate in opposition to the truth. They are literally living in a state of cognitive dissonance. We've talked about this before. To whatever degree the unbeliever lives according to the, the moral dictates of the Judeo-Christian value while rejecting the Judeo-Christian God, they are living in, in contradiction to themselves. They are living in opposition to themselves. They are living in this state of dissonance. Where they find success, they, when they live by this morality, which God has designed, but they have rejected the designer. 
where they live according to the rule of some man or religious system which claims to represent God while ignoring the very revelation of God himself. They're living in opposition to themselves. And these errors are deadly serious, aren't they? These people don't need to be destroyed. These people don't need to be dominated. They need to be instructed. They need to be helped out of their errors and ushered into the truth. Have you ever, maybe you think back to when you were younger, and you think uh, back to someone who was very good at something and you were trying to get better at it. And you reached out to them. And you reached out to them for help. And instead of helping you, they made fun of you or they mocked you or they, 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 they ignored you. And you walked away saying, look, I wasn't looking for you to show how good you were at this by telling me how bad I am. I know how bad I am. I was coming to you for help, right? And then you reverse those roles and you're working on something and somebody out of the goodness of their own heart comes up to you who's better at it and says, hey, I've learned, I've learned a few tricks. Do this, do that, do that, do that. It'll be a lot easier for you. You say, wow, I've just really learned something. He didn't have to tell me that. He didn't have to take his time. He already knows what he's doing. He didn't have to take his time to pour that out onto me, but he wanted to help me. He poured himself into me. He gave up something of himself to help me. And, and what, a help, what a blessing those people are in our lives, right? Those people can literally change our lives. They can change the course of our decision-making process. They can put us on a path to where we are growing and where we're progressing. You don't have all the answers and neither do I, but we know who does. And by God's grace, to whatever degree, we have submitted ourselves to the God of the Bible and to believing the word, even if we haven't figured it all out yet, it is our privilege to gently, meekly, humbly pass this along to others, to help them along on their way, not to dominate them, not to destroy them, not to make them feel like fools, not to make them look like fools. Arguments don't help people. I get into an argument to win, not to persuade. Conversations help people. Gentle, loving, Patient conversation, this is how we win people. And this is how people who live in opposition to their own existence are helped. And what this means is that I need to discern and control the objective of my spiritual interactions, be it with a believer or with an unbeliever. When someone's walking contrary to the truth and I take it upon myself to engage them, I do it with this goal in mind not to win, but to help, to instruct. And we find this, the, the specifics of this goal in verse 25 here and then into verse 26. In meekness instructing those that oppose themselves, if God peradventure will give them repentance unto the acknowledging of the truth and that they may recover themselves out of the snare of the devil who are taken captive by him at his will. My goal is to give them the truth necessary to lead them into the acknowledgement of the truths of Scripture and that this acknowledgement then compels them to repent of their former way of thinking because the devil is a liar from the beginning and to commit themselves to truths. Lead people to truth so that they may be delivered out of the snare of the devil who holds their minds captive to his lies. Go out the doors of this church and you will be surrounded by men and women who are convinced 
of the devil's lies. They are convinced that money will make them happy. They are convinced that sexual impurity will bring them contentment. They are convinced that might, that power, makes right. That, that, that everything is, is a bunch of power plays and they just need to be on the right side of power and they'll be in, in the right side of morality. They are convinced that if they only make themselves good enough that God will let them into heaven. They are convinced that if they follow their heart, it will lead them to satisfaction and contentment. And they are convinced of these things because they have been lied to. They have been duped by the philosophy of, of the father of lies. But here's the thing. The entrance of God's word brings light. God's word is the great cleansing agent. And this must be my daily goal. If I fight, if I argue, if I contend against people, they harden their hearts so that they can win an argument rather than listen, they're not going to receive that light, are they? They're going to close the window of their heart because they have to win or because they have to defend themselves against me making them look like a fool or feeling like an idiot. But if I, in meekness, instruct those that oppose themselves, not striving, but patient, humble, gentle, if they're willing to leave that window open, then perhaps the light of the glorious truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ can shine into that heart. And maybe they will be led out of the lies in which they have been held captive by the devil at his will and into an acknowledgement of the truth. We do this with the deepest desire that, that these that, that people would hear the truth, acknowledge it, repent, and be delivered from the lies of the devil. Not just the unbeliever, but the same holds true for this subverted believer. The believer majoring on the minors, the believer reading between the lines, the believer with spiritual tunnel vision, the believer who has somehow, who has somehow divorced the teachings of the word of God from their own practices. Fights, arguments, accusations, these things are not going to bring people out of error into the truth. Every once in a while, you will get someone who will, become, who will be so shocked by some measure of argument and they'll have enough humility within them to say, wow, I really lost that and you're right, and they'll come to repentance. Not, not the common way, though, is it? If I want to win someone back to the truth, it will be through patient, gentle instruction, helping them, not dominating them, drawing them to things that profit, not striving about foolish and unlearned questions that encourage argument. Because once a person is on the plane of argument rather than on the plane of conversation, they're looking to win, not to learn. Now we've been, throughout this month, memorizing Ephesians chapter 6, verse 12, which reminds us that the battle we fight is not a battle against people, but against the devil, against his lying philosophies and the ideologies which ensnare the minds and the hearts of men. And it is for this reason that the method of our instruction is so important. Because each spiritual conversation with an unbeliever or a subverted believer, with each of these, the topic of truth, when I bring truth up to a subverted believer, when I'm bringing truth up to an unbeliever, I'm actually engaged in a spiritual rescue mission. And the manner in which I engage matters as a representation of Jesus Christ and his word. I'm not going into battle against an unbeliever. I'm battling with Satan and the ideology of Satan and the deceits and the lies of Satan, but with the man that's in front of me, I'm on a rescue mission. 
The equipment I bring to a rescue mission is very different than the equipment I bring to a battlefield. And even if I have to fight the battle to get to the place of the rescue, my disposition is going to change once I'm in the rescue mode and not in battle mode anymore. Right? And so if I need to fight the battle to get to the point where I can, I can, I can get to the rescue mission, okay, well, bring the weapons along, but then we've got to get into rescue mode. And in rescue mode, I'm not going to fight. I'm not going to strive. I'm not going to argue because that's not going to win anyone. We recognize the battle we're fighting is on a spiritual plane against a spiritual foe. And it is for this reason that it is nonsensical to fight the spiritual battle with the carnal weapons of gotchas. It's carnal, isn't it? This clickbait culture, this gotcha, this dominate, this win thing, that's a, that's a carnal motive. It feeds my pride. It feeds a measure of superiority. It feeds the judgmentalism. It feeds these things, but what it does not feed is the spirit. But know as well that you are not alone in this battle. The battle for truth is not a gladiatorial one-on-one -on -one match between you and some satan satanically subverted foe. You haven't been thrown into a coliseum one-on-one, -on -one, you and them. Remember that because this is a spiritual battle, that means you are a partner with the Spirit of God in it. You become the messenger, and the Holy Spirit supplies the power. And this is just as true when you're seeking to help a subverted believer as it is when you're seeking to help an unbeliever. Much of my teaching today lends itself to thinking about evangelism, but many of my cross-references, though they will speak to this end, remember, though, in 2 Timothy 2, Paul has just warned about subverted believers, right? Those striving about words to no profit. That is his context. He's just spoken about Hymenaeus and Philetus and their false doctrines that have been brought into the church. So these things are just as applicable to the subverted believer, and remember that. So Jesus taught in John 16. We've talked about it a lot in our Sunday school as we've talked through the gospel. Verses 7 through 11. Nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It is expedient for you that I go away. For if I go not away, the Comforter will not come unto you. But if I depart, I will send him unto you. And when he has come, he will reprove the world of sin, of righteousness, and of judgment. Of sin, because they believe not on me. Of righteousness, because I go to my Father, and ye see me no more. Of judgment, because the prince of this world is judged. Remember, as you instruct those that oppose themselves, that the Spirit of God is busy in this world testifying of truth and commending it to the hearts of men. I'm a messenger. I'm a messenger called by God to patiently, gently instruct others. And I'm not alone in this battle. I partner with the Holy Spirit. I speak the truth of God's word. Faith cometh by hearing and hearing by the word of God. The light of God's word shines in the hearts of darkness and convinces them of the truth. But what if I enter in Rather, with, with instruction, what if I enter into the conversation in an argumentative way? Either by engaging in foolish or unlearned questions or in order to destroy my opponent. Now the objective of the other person is not to learn but to win. And the Spirit of God no longer has a heart that is receptive to truth. 
I am subverting the ability of the Spirit of God to do his work if my method of being a messenger is not reflective of God's truth. John, 1 John 4, 4 tells us, greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world. I have the power of God and the truth of God, that self-validating truth on my side. God forbid then that I would subvert my own efforts through carnal indulgences of pride and exercises in debate. And that's what we do. We, our, our, our pride kind of gets worked up. We want to win or our judgmentalism kicks in. And then we actually subvert the message of the gospel through the manner in which we seek to deliver it. Or we subvert the truth through the, the, the absolutely um, odious way that we present it. And we serve to harden hearts rather than make hearts susceptible to the working of the Spirit of God. The servant of the Lord must not strive, but be gentle unto all men, apt to teach, patient, in meekness instructing those that oppose themselves. If God peradventure will give them repentance to the acknowledging of the truth. As a representative of God and his word, do you enter into spiritual conversations with unbelievers or subverted believers to convince and to dominate or to discuss? Are you gentle, patient, and meek as an instructor to those who oppose themselves? Or have you been distracted in your ministry by wanting to win rather than convince? Have you been approaching evangelism all the wrong way? From the beginning, assuming a defensive posture and naturally falling into arguments rather than elevating instruction through humility. Are you an effective ambassador for the Lord Jesus Christ? And as we close today, there's one more passage I would like to take you to in order to help set our minds toward this spiritual battle. Perhaps as you've been listening, you've thought, well, all this sounds kind of complicated. I have to figure out which questions are foolish and unlearned, and then which ones are valid, and then I have to discern at which point it may not profit anymore. Then I have to be careful that I don't just start arguing to win. And maybe I'll just keep my mouth shut and avoid all of these problems entirely. Can I take, you a, uh, can I take a moment to implore you not to think this way? I've given you a lot of instruction today, and we're talking about a lot of things in Sunday school as it relates to the gospel. The gospel is simple. And if you keep your eye on the prize, truth is, is, is not all simple, but truth in and of itself is a simple concept. If I keep my eye on truth, most of these things will find their place naturally. If I keep my eye on truth, then when truth is no longer the topic of conversation, I know that there's been a derailment and I just need to, to readjust. If, if, if uh, truth begins to fall underneath the weight of some argument, I know that things have been derailed and we've got to adjust. If my priority is on truth, then a lot of these things will, will work themselves out. But I exhort you not to think this way, to say, well, that's just too complicated. That's too many things to have to think about. I'm just, gonna, I'm just, I'm just not going to go this way. See, because life is too short and eternity is too long for us to hide the gospel. 2 Corinthians 4, verses 1 through 6, Paul says this. Therefore, seeing we have this ministry, as we have received mercy, we faint not. 
but have renounced the hidden things of dishonesty, not walking in craftiness, nor handling the word of God deceitfully, but by manifestation of the truth, commending ourselves to every man's conscience in the sight of God. That's, that's sharing the gospel. I'm not here to handle the word of God deceitfully. I'm not here to walk in craftiness to try to find some back door uh, to, to get to people. I am manifesting the truth and commending it to the hearts of people. Verse three, but if our gospel be hid, it is hid to them that are lost, in whom the God of this world hath blinded the minds of them which believe not, lest the light of the glorious gospel of Christ, who is the image of God, should shine unto them. For we preach not ourselves, but Christ Jesus the Lord, and ourselves your servants for Jesus' sake. For God, who commanded the light to shine out of darkness, has shined it in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. If our gospel be hid, it is hid to them that are lost. If the light does not shine unto them, how can blinded minds receive it? How can they be brought out of the snare of the devil if truth is not getting into the hearts and minds and ears of hearers? The call today is not, well, just don't shine your light because you might mess up. Don't shine your light because you might start an argument. Don't shine your light because, it, it, um, because you're just going to devolve into an argument anyway. Don't shine your light just in case you might, uh, you might uh, end up in an argument. You know, I, I've ended up in an argument lots of times. <laughs> And I've walked away saying, I shouldn't have been baited into that. And I got baited into that. And it derailed it. And I walked away saying, man, I lost an opportunity there because I got derailed. Because I got baited into an argument. Or because my hackles got raised. And I, I got proud. And I, I, I walked away having won rather than having convinced. It's going to happen. And then you learn and you grow and you repent and you try again. right? But the last thing that we want to do is stop trying. The last thing we want to do is not put ourselves out there because the God of this world hath blinded the minds of them that believe not. Because this is the only way, the acknowledging of the truth, the preaching of the truth is the only way that people are going to recover themselves out of the snare of the devil who has taken him captive at his will, who has taken them captive at his will. The call is simply to make sure that you're not undermining your own efforts and undermining the power of the Holy Spirit by the manner in which we present truth. We don't evangelize to show others how right we are. We don't engage the subverted believer to make them see how spiritual we are. We preach Christ Jesus the Lord and ourselves servants for Jesus' sake. And the servant of the Lord does not strive, but be gentle apt to teach, patient, meekly instructing those that oppose themselves. That's what we're called to do. In an age, in a time, in a place where we don't see a lot of this anymore. In an age, in a time, in a place where everyone wants to be right, where everyone wants to win. Can you assume a fundamentally different mindset in your interactions? Can you assume a mindset of gentleness, of meekness, of kindness, of love, patience, and an eagerness to help people, to teach, to instruct, in order that people might be brought out of darkness and into Christ's light. Thank you for listening to Pastor Jamin Wickler from Legacy Baptist Church in Buffalo, Minnesota. 
More information about Legacy Baptist Church and a library of sermons are available at www.legacybaptistchurch.net.